Today's reading is from John 10, verses 1 to 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear, hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know a voice, the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Well, it's good to have my wife with me in church this morning again. So, <laughs> so her orthopedist gave her the green light to start walking around uh, again. So, but later on during the pastoral prayer, if you hear a voice arising from the chair, she's going to remain there and pray from her seat. So, um, anyway, that's uh, wonderful. So. Uh, I will continue my duties of probably doing a lot of washing of dishes and whatnot, but anyway, it's, uh, <laughs> see, I've got dishpan hands, you know, you start to see them, oh, <laughs> yes, yeah, so I guess I should, it is official, I am not, I didn't forget to shave, I'm going to grow a beard, uh, so I haven't had one for 25 years, so Dindy is still uh, trying to decide uh, whether she likes the new look. So, so we'll see. Uh, Wayne's, all the bearded ones are encouraging me, uh, you know, to, to join their ranks. I, I will tell you one thing that's interesting. So I was just over in Izmir for a day, and four different times Turkish people approach me asking me questions or wanting to talk to me about something. That never happens. So I don't know, do I look more Turkish now with a beard or not? I mean, <laughs> so anyway. Dindy, <laughs> oh. did you hear that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, hallelujah. <laughs> well, my one close friend in his verse says, you do look older with a beard, so we'll see. So my vanity wins out after all, so. 
Well, this morning we are on the third of the I Am sayings in the Gospel of John. And again, if you miss any of the uh, first two weeks, uh, you can go to the podcast. Uh, Robin, two weeks ago, talking about uh, the first saying, I am the bread of life. And last week, Jason uh, leading us in the text dealing with I am the light of the world. Now, this week, we're going to look at the third of these sayings, which is, uh, we find in chapter 10, those verses that ML just wrote, where Jesus says, I am the door. Now, some of your translations will say, I am the gate. We're sticking with, I am the door here, because there's actually a different word in the Greek text that is translated gate. And Sean's going to flash up a couple images of what an ancient sheepfold would have looked like. So these will, you know, kind of embed these in your mind. Uh, as we go on with our text this morning. So you can see that uh, you've got a, a rock pile, even the more primitive ones, they take a bunch of, of, of brush. You'll see some of this even out in the Turkish countryside today in order to put sheep and goats in here. So this is a much more elaborate one, but it's more of a, ga- a door than that's the entrance uh, to the sheepfold there. And one of these very large ones, multiple shepherds will be bringing flocks in and they'll bring them together there. And this is the uh, illustration here that knowing the voice of each shepherd, the, the flocks will follow those. And so you've got a door here, uh, more so than a gate. Let's take a look at another illustration there. And in some of these, you actually have a hired hand, a gatekeeper, whose job is uh, to allow the, uh, the various shepherds uh, access to their flocks to lead them in and out uh, morning and night here. Uh, and so, and even the more primitive ones, the gatekeepers actually sitting in the doorway, you know, controlling uh, access there and guarding them at night. And we've got a, um, a modern version uh, of a sheepfold right there with the type of door allowing access to the flocks of sheep and goats. So when we are looking at this imagery then related to Jesus declaring, I am the door. Just remember these images here. So we can turn them off and and move on. And so we see now Jesus using this background, once again, from everyday life to illustrate a spiritual truth. And this morning, we want to look at three aspects of our text today. First of all, it's background. So that we've been noting that the background of Jesus' sayings is very important for our understanding of them. The second thing, we're going to see that Jesus is using a figurative illustration here, and he expresses this uh, clearly uh, here in this particular passage. And finally, there is a warning that Jesus is giving here in this passage. So let's look at the background. So as Robin told us, the I am sayings are based on a Greek expression, ego eimi, ego eimi, which can be translated I am or it is I. And in the Greek Old Testament, over a hundred times this expression says, I am the Lord. So there's a clear connection then with the divinity there. And again, in the New Testament, it can be used in very general use. Paul says, ego me, I'm a Jewish man I'm in this context. So it's a very simple grammatical construction. And then we come down to these seven I am sayings in John's gospel. And as Robin also mentioned, many see a background in the Old Testament when Moses 
went to the Lord and said, as I go to the children of Israel, what is the name? What is your name that I should tell them who you are? And in the Greek version, it says, ego emi haon, I am the one who is. And we see, especially in the book of Revelation, four times this language is picked up. You recognize the expression, the God who is and was and is to come. So it gives the fullest expression in time, past, present, and future, or I should say present, past, and future in Revelation, building on this whole idea of I am. But it is uncertain whether in these first two I am sayings, the Jews, even the disciples, would have had much of a divine connection with the I am sayings when Jesus declares he's the bread of life and the light of the world. But we come to the end of chapter 8, to use a sports illustration, we have a game changer that takes place here. And what is that? The Jews are discussing with Jesus the fact that Abraham is their father. And Jesus declares, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Of course, the Jews are incredulous here. They have total disbelief that Jesus is making this kind of claim. You're like, you've only, you haven't even lived 50 years old, and you're making a claim that Abraham has seen you. And of course, he gives his famous reply, before Abraham was, ego eni, I am. Well, what's the reaction? Well, we see, remember last week, Jason was highlighting this background, especially in the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. And again, we have a very strong reference to a couple of these that I'm going to share with you this morning. Isaiah 41.4, I, the Lord, the first and the last, ego emi, I am. So very clear declaration of divinity there using our expression. A couple chapters later in Isaiah 43, 25, he says, and emphatically, I am, I am, ego emi, ego emi, the one who blots out your transgressions for my sake, and I will not remember your sins. So what are the Jews hearing when they hear Jesus say, before Abraham was, I am? Well, they're making these connections back to these Old Testament prophecies related to the servant who's going to come and who will be I am. And we see from their response now clearly how they understood what Jesus says. What do they do? They pick up stones to stone him for what? Blasphemy, for making the claim that he is equal with God. And so this whole I am sayings now to take on a new context. Just to use an illustration, I was trying to think of one. Remember, you were a child, you know, and your mother is saying, clean your room. Clean your room. And you put it off, and you continue to watch television, or you continue to uh, play games or do something. And finally, she gets so exasperated, and she just turns, just do it. Just do it. But if I take that phrase and put a swoosh symbol next to it, it takes on a new context, doesn't it? 
It becomes a global marketing brand for what company? Nike, of course, which is just do it. And so what I'm suggesting this morning is that Jesus now does a theological branding (laughs) with these I am sayings that as he continues on to use them, there's a very clear connection that he's stating that I am a divine figure here. And so we have this here in John chapter 10 as he makes the claim, I am the door. And there's going to be a lot of overlap with I am the good shepherd here that Robin is going to pick up next week. I'm not going to try and tread on his territory and and, uh, kind of make my way through this. The other background here goes on into chapter 10 and the, the before Abraham was I am ends in chapter 8. We have the story of the man born blind, which continues on here. And of course, the miracle that takes place uh, here, and Jesus says that I'm going to heal this man to show, to demonstrate the works of the Lord. Verse 5, he again declares he's the light of the world and proceeds to heal this man in a tremendous miracle for a man who has never seen the light of day. Suddenly, light comes physically and a little bit later spiritually into his life. And of course, what happens with this miracle again with the Pharisees who are watching this? It triggers another major controversy. Number one, the man's healed on the Sabbath. But then the man shows up and asks him, who healed you? And he says, this, this man over here, this Jesus. And in the discussion that follows, the blind man who now sees confronts them. And he states, nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And of course, the reaction of the Pharisees is throw him out of the synagogue. I mean, this is an unlearned man. He's trying to teach us and make this claim that this man who healed him is divine. But we see now the man who has his physical eyes open to the light recognizes the divine light while the Pharisees cannot see this light. And so they cast him out of the synagogue. And so we see chapter 9, which leads into our text today, ending with this controversy then with Jesus and the Pharisees swirling in the background here. And we see this picked up in verses 39 through 41. And Jesus says, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. And so some Pharisees who are with him heard him say this and said, what are we blind to? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you see, your guilt remains. And so the tension, the controversy between Jesus and the religious leaders just continues to increase here as we move through the Gospel of John. Second point in our text today, the figurative illustration. He continues now his discussion with the Pharisees by telling a story that really doesn't seem to relate about a sheep pen, a door, and a doorkeeper. And as we've seen in the earlier examples that we put on the screen, the only access into the pen is through what? The door. 
past the gatekeeper. And inside that enclosure, whether it be of stone or thorns and thistles, the sheep will be safe. They'll be protected from the elements, the wolves, whatever would assail them from the outside. But Jesus says not only did the shepherd have access to the pen, but he said there's the potential for false shepherds who will try to get in, steal those sheep and goats as thieves and robbers that the gatekeeper, the doorkeeper, has to be vigilant to watch out for those who would come in. And he begins now to contrast the true and the false shepherds. On the one hand, the flock follows the voice, knows the voice of the true shepherd, and notice follows. The false shepherd now must drive the flock from the rear because they don't recognize his voice, but they push in order to get their will with the sheep. The strange voice then of the false shepherd then scares the sheep. We see Jesus again falling back on familiar language in the Old Testament. If you recall the prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah, frequently they spoke out against the false shepherds over Israel and Judah. Jeremiah 23.1, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture. Ezekiel 34.2, Woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? Zechariah 10.3, My anger burns against the shepherds and I will punish the teachers. Now, do you think that the Pharisees don't understand that words of Jesus are pointedly singling them out here? So right in the middle of this illustration now, the narrator, John, breaks in. So he has to explain what's going on here. So this is only one of our seven I am sayings where we have this intrusion really into the story. And John tells us that Jesus now is speaking with uh, figurative language. He's using a metaphor to illustrate spiritual truths to his listeners. Now, as we know from reading the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus teaches in a lot of parables in those first three Gospels. But when we get into the Gospel of John, we don't see any parables Jesus is using other types of illustrations, figurative language here. And, and John specifically says here in the only place in John that you need to understand this to understand the spiritual truths that Jesus is teaching. And in the Gospel of John, if we fail to understand this symbolic language that I think covers the entire uh, uh, book, we're going to get into big trouble as we've tried to interpret some of these images and illustrations literally. My case in point, and the church has fought over this for 2,000 years when Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood. People who try and take these literally, okay? But John is telling us this is figurative illustrations 
uh, that we need to understand. These are symbols of something, so you can understand my theological position, because I think John is giving us a clue here of how to understand this imagery in the Gospel of John. I am the door. He's not some wooden thing that's standing there. It's a, it, doors are what? Ways to enter and exit something. And so Jesus is using that and not to try and make it anything more than that. As I said, next week, Robin is going to develop this image of the shepherd, and I'm going to leave the rest to, to him to do that. I want to spend most of the time here in this final section dealing with warning. And we see in verses 7 through 9, then, the explanation for the story. And in this, the I am saying is finally found. He says, I am the door of the sheep. And here he states that all who came before him, and of course, he's not referring to the true prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and to Zechariah, but referring to the false leaders of Israel and Judah to whom they were speaking against, who were claiming to be leading the sheep, but were really fleecing the flock and bringing deception to the people of God under the old covenant. And as in the days of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, there were two choices that Jesus is presenting here. There were choices in Jesus' day. There are choices in our day as well. You can enter the kingdom of heaven through the door, who is Jesus. And Jesus says here is the result. If you do that, if you enter the kingdom through me, the door, you're going to have salvation. And salvation here is total salvation. It's body, soul, and spirit. We just saw that for the man who was born blind. Jesus touches him, and he brings wholeness to his body. We're praying for Nilofer, for wholeness to her body, that God will raise her up. This is why we pray for the sick. We pray for all dimensions of our lives as followers of Jesus, as his sheep, because he has promised to give us the salvation in all of these areas. And the good pasture, of course, represents then the totality. And we have this beautiful promise, and I will give you abundant life in that. Now, it's important when he says abundant life, he's not exempting us from trials and tribulations. That is abundant life in the midst of the trials and tribulations of life. As we heard Jim give a wonderful testimony last week, you know, what God is doing in the midst of this great trial of Nilefer's hospitalization and doing this, how God is still working in the midst of this to remind us as we're studying in James on our Wednesday night studies. He says, count it all joy when you fall into diverse trials and temptations. So the abundant life does not exempt us from the challenges and the problems that are common to life. But we have Jesus now as the door, as we continue to go to the Father through him, that we will be able to find salvation in him. I can remember as a child, maybe you learned this song too growing up in Sunday school, one door and only one, and yet its sides are two. 
I'm on the inside. Which side are you? Any of you learned that song in Sunday school? A couple of you raised your hand. <laughs> one door and only one, and yet its sides are two. I'm on the inside. Which side are you? And it becomes very relevant in our day and age with evangelism. And why is that? The claim of Jesus that he's the only door to God, to the kingdom of heaven, really goes counter to the spirit of our age. I mean, the common thinking, you talk to people here in the United States, Canada, Europe, wherever you go, there are many ways to God, isn't there? There are many doors, people will argue. You know, whatever feels right to you, you know, just do it as long as you're a good person, you know, and you're sincere and you try and follow and go through that door, you know, we're all going to come out at the end at the same place. I mean, that's kind of the prevailing thinking, and you run into this all the time. As you know, we just had uh, our daughter and son-in-law and granddaughter here, and this is one of the big issues with our daughter. How can you say that Jesus is the only way? I mean, how, how can you say that, it's, that the Christianity is inclusive? You've got to go this way, and, and the, or, or it's inclu- exclusive, excuse me. You, you know, you need to be inclusive. All of these people got to decide which is the best way to God for themselves. And she has just really hung up on this whole thing, idea that Jesus has to be that door. And so this is something that, especially in evangelism, that we encounter. And I know you hear it regularly as you share with people that Jesus being the only door to God and through the kingdom of heaven is just a huge stumbling block today to the gospel. The second thing that Jesus is talking about here, he's warning the disciples, his hearers, and John the same way that following religious leaders like the Pharisees, who are really thieves and robbers, he says, they're going to kill, steal, and destroy the flock that follows them. They are not going to have the abundant life that Jesus is promising. And he lays out a very stark contrast between true and false leaders here. And of course, the Pharisees are highly offended because they rightly assume that Jesus is talking about them. And of course, this is part of his controversy with the Pharisees. They are not being the true shepherds that God has wanted them to be. So, in the final few minutes, I want to bring this, in closing, this issue of Jesus as the door into our own spiritual situation. Because in the body of Christ, we still have Pharisee kind of figures. We have thieves and robbers who are out there posing as spiritual leaders who are actually leading flocks astray. Dindy and I came to Christ in the mid-1970s. I know for many of you that's long before you were born. But we soon began listening uh, to a group of teachers out of then Fort Lauderdale, Florida, called the Fort Lauderdale Five. Back in the days of cassette tapes, some of you have never even seen a cassette tape. I was, I was going to bring one and show it to, to you, you know. 
before CD CDs and you know MP3 and all those things. But we were regularly getting cassette tapes and listening to hundreds of hours of teaching by some of these, maybe some of you read Derek Prince and Bob Mumford and some of these guys. And we were really getting built up in faith, getting to know the word. And uh, so uh, we, were, we felt we were very much growing in our knowledge of the Lord. Our pastor in our church was also uh, listening to these guys and being influenced. But as time went along, we began to feel something wasn't right. These guys seemed to be teaching that they were the doors rather than Jesus, okay? We saw this tendency in our pastor as well. And at this point, we began to pray about whether we should go on to Bible school and get training. And Dindy got the call before I did. And she was praying for me. But as we went and talked to him, he really discouraged us. He said, no, I don't think you need to go for any further Bible training. Do it within the context of the local church. But that's not what God was speaking to us. And so we began to feel very conflicted. You know, our pastor is trying to give us guidance here, but God's trying to do, do us here. And so, but then as we listened to more and more, I mean, the, these guys were teaching us, you got to listen to your pastor, you know, whatever he tells you, he's the door, this and that. But then other warning signs came from other teachers around there that this group began to be called the shepherding movement. It's the shepherding movement. And they began to, again, be directive in the lives of people who were part of this. And you get down to a point telling people who to marry, what jobs to take, even what to name children and all of these kind of things. And so we began to slowly move ourselves away from that teaching and get into a more holistic type of teaching to help us you know, break out from this sort of authoritarian teaching as it was beginning to emerge. And of course, some of you have come out of backgrounds like this, what's called sometimes toxic Christianity or toxic churches. And we've seen the fruit from this type of teaching with sexual harassment and sexual abuse in churches and of uh, uh, wasteful spending and in, in, in various things that have happened uh, as a result of this kind of leadership. And as we look back at our own church experience, we've had at least three pastors that we could kind of put in this category then of toxic leaders who had real control issues in exercising authority over their congregations that impacted us. And, and we felt uh, very much that they were not the good shepherds that they should have been to their congregations. I was looking online for some characteristics of these thieves and robber type leaders, and then I pulled off, a, I think, a very helpful group of 10 that I'd like to share with you this morning. Examples of thieves and robbers' leadership. Now, I know many of you, SPUC is not going to be the final church in your lives. You're going to be leave here, go to the continents around the world. But think of these things as you're choosing a church, as you're looking to a pastor then to be your spiritual shepherd. How does he line up 
with what's said here. Number one, they lack the fruit of the Spirit. They lack the fruit of the Spirit, and they expect behavior of others that they don't expect of themselves. In other words, their philosophy, do as I say, not as I do, okay? So, do they have the fruit? They seek a minimal structure of accountability, and if possible, would operate in a totally autocratic fashion. In other words, they would make all the decisions. They wouldn't have a church council. They wouldn't have elders and deacons or whatever structure you have. They want to make all the decisions. And I was just in Izmir. I was with a South African friend, Michael Timke, who's uh, organizing tours now here and uh, bringing South Africans to tour the biblical sites. And he was telling me, he didn't even know I was speaking on this, but it was a great example. He'd gone into a large charismatic church in Johannesburg and uh, trying to find out who the person to talk to that they might be interested in bringing a, a group from the church to you know, do Paul's journeys or the seven churches or something. Finally, he worked his way through the hierarchy to find out the person there in charge who could make that decision. And he was told, well, the apostle had a word from the Lord that nobody in the church is supposed to visit Turkey. Okay? God spoke to the apostle that nobody in the church was supposed to visit Turkey. Now, I would say, <laughs> I'm sure glad he didn't give that word to Paul and to John, okay? <laughs> or we'd be in big trouble, okay? So somewhere along the line, he's changed his mind, you know, about people visiting Turkey. But an example, though, a one person making a decision that affects thousands of people, okay? Number three, they see almost everyone as inferior to themselves, and they criticize any other leaders who might be rising who would be a threat to them. Number four, they show favoritism. They have a favored few in the congregation, and they marginalize the rest. Oh, boy, this gets close to home with some of our church experience. Bringing family members in and close circles and moving them on up, whether they're qualified spiritually or not, okay, becomes a real issue. They have frequent anger outbursts when they don't get their way. So they surround themselves with yes people. We can think of world leaders, too, kind of around this, too. They have what yes people around them. There's nobody who will question what they're saying. So they have an inner skirt circle that includes close friends and longtime uh, uh, confidants. Number seven, they say one thing to some people, but different things to others. So they have a total lack of transparency in how they deal with the congregation. Autocratic leaders are rarely transparent. Number eight, they seek to dismiss or marginalize people before they attempt to develop them. If they develop people, grow them up in faith, they become a threat to them. So why disciple and train people to become strong in the Lord Jesus? In fact, people are only a means to their end, whether it's to build their congregation bigger or uh, whatever the, their motivation. 
Number nine, they're manipulative, using partial truths to get their way. Clear communication would reveal their autocratic behavior, so they keep their communication not understandable and obscure. They could communicate, but they purposely don't in order to mask their uh, leadership style. And finally, and I think this is the, the, the final thing, they're self-absorbed and narcissistic. In fact, if you read all nine of these things to them, they would not see it in themselves. Why? They're self-deceived. They, 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 would, they would never say that I, I have any of these characteristics operating in my life. As I said, SPUC is not going to be your church forever. You're going to be attending other churches and many other continents. But when you return home at some point and start looking for a church to attend, if Jesus is not the door there and the leadership exhibits characteristics like these, start looking elsewhere. <laughs> Find another church, another place to attend. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself among the sheep who are plundered and destroyed and will not come into the abundant life that Jesus has promised here in this passage. In conclusion, with this third saying now, Jesus really takes off the glove, so, so to speak. He's fully revealed himself as the divine I am. The controversy with the religious leaders has gained intensity, and their desire to kill Jesus strengthens now as they claim he is speaking blasphemy. While his claim to be the door of the sheepfold, or with his claim, Jesus contrasts himself to the Pharisees, who are the present-day incarnation of the false spiritual leadership that the Old Testament prophets spoke against. Finally, we have thieves and robbers even in our day in the church who are still trying to take control of the flock, God's people, and make themselves the door and not Jesus. Next week, Robin's going to take us into the fourth saying that's a part of the same chapter, I'm the Good Shepherd. I'm looking forward to that. But let's pray. Father, we thank you for this powerful illustration today of you being the door. Lord, we thank you that we have gone through that door and we have that abundant life in Christ. And if there's anyone here this morning who has still not gone through that door, we pray, Lord, that you would show them that you are the one door and only one. And we need to be on the inside of that door as part of your sheepfold. Show them that today and help us in our witness, Lord, to help others see why you are the door and help them enter in the abundant life that we have. We thank you for this congregation. We thank you for the leadership. We thank you that we are not a toxic church, but we are attempting to be a people of God here. Lord, we're Jesus at the door, and we are serving him. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.